The Bible reading this morning is 2 Chronicles 32, 1 to 23, which can be found on page 458 in the Church Bibles. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the streams that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that, that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lashish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and for all the people of the Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you, to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove his God's high places and altars? Or remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it. Do you not know that I and my predecessors have done all the have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my predecessors destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors. How much less will your god deliver you from my hand? Sarah Cherub's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters ridiculing the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the peoples of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to all the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world. 
the work of human hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this, and the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew his own land, withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, keep your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles 32, because whenever do you get to say something like that? <clears throat> All right, let's just pray and get to work then. Tough crowd this morning, you guys. <laughs> Far out. What's that? Daylight savings. Daylight savings, you reckon? Just party on. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words, and please would, just, would you rouse us from our sleep? Fill our hearts with joy and a great willingness to listen to you with all the attention we can muster, that you might make us more like the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, when my sister was young, I think she was in year seven, she was having a difficult time slotting into high school. Nothing too extreme, just the usual stuff. And uh, she was lamenting about this one night to my dad, and he lovingly suggested she should look up Hezekiah 3.19. Well, that's what she did. It sounded like good advice after all. But she discovered what you will discover if you turn in your Bibles to Hezekiah 3.19 right now. It doesn't exist. Right? There is no book of the Bible called Hezekiah. Sounds like there should be. Sounds like there definitely could be, but there isn't. And my dad knew that. He was just never one to let a pastorally helpful response get in the way of having a laugh, especially at our expense. Well, it sounds like there should be a book of the Bible called Hezekiah because there's a king in the Bible called Hezekiah. He's less well known than Solomon and David, the great, great kings in Israel's history. But along with his great-grandson Josiah, Hezekiah was one of the few kings who seemed to do right in the eyes of the Lord. And his story truly is a story of grace. I mean, let's just listen to how 2 Kings describes him. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Right, so I'll have what he's having. So who was this king, Hezekiah? Why is his story a story of grace? And what can we learn from his story to apply to our own story? That's the task before us today. And if you've just joined us following um, Jazz Church last week, where, or, or you're new amongst us, we're um, towards the back end of a little series that we're doing called Stories of Grace. And in the Stories of Grace series, we're just plucking um, Bible figures, like kind of the lesser known... Uh, sit wherever you want, it's fine. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, welcome. 
Karen, it's fine? It's fine. <laughs> All right. Love to have you guys with us. We're plucking um, these little stories um, from the Bible of lesser-known figures and tracing how God's grace flowed into their lives. Now, um, let's focus, guys. Remember, grace, it's the, the kindness and goodness of God given to undeserving people. And so on Father's Day, we looked at how grace flowed into Father Abraham's life. Then we investigated grace flowing into the lives of wonderful Bible women, Rahab in the Old Testament and Mary Magdalene in the New. But today... We're back in the Old Testament, and it's a king with the right-sounding name, Hezekiah. So who was he? How is his a story of grace? And why should we care? Well, to understand Hezekiah, it's necessary to get a feel for the geopolitical state of the world at that time. And as it turns out, it's not that different from ours. The power of the day was an empire called the Assyrian Empire, and it had swept all the other nations of the world before it. The Assyrians had a reputation for being particularly cruel. For example, when they captured prisoners, they would put a fish hook through their prisoners' noses and then thread them all together. So if they wanted to move the prisoners along, it was very easy. You'd just kind of give the line a bit of a tug. Now, no empire lasts forever, of course, but the Egyptians who had previously been the, the superpower of the day, they were in decline. And their decline is sort of operating in the background of Hezekiah's story. And the Babylonian Empire, which would become an even greater um, empire than the Assyrian Empire, they were emerging, and they emerge kind of in Hezekiah's story too. But really, it's the Assyrians who are the dominant, brooding, threatening tyrants of the day. And the king of Assyria is a fellow that I pronounce Sennacherib. I think it's a great name for a baby. And uh, so in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1, when Assyria invades Judah... It's much more like the, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan than a Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Okay? It's, it's not an empire in decline with one you know, last desperate grasp for the glory days of old. It is a dominant power against a much smaller, though still defiant, opponent. And it's, it's also important to get a feel for the religious state of the nation um, of Israel at this time, the Old Testament people of God. And have a look in your Bibles there, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1, that opening line, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done. Friends, that is like the first breath of fresh oxygen that you imagine a submariner would suck into his lungs after being at sea under the surface in stuffy air for months, right? It's like when you, when you first rip off the N95, you've been wearing all day fresh air because so often in the history of Israel's kings, you read a summary like this, such and such became king and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But with Hezekiah, it, it's different, isn't it? After all he had so faithfully done. Well, what had he so faithfully done? The book of two kings and also the book of Isaiah um, cover the reign of Hezekiah. And, and they look at it from a far more historical point of view. And if you've ever wondered why have we got like the book of one or two kings as well as the book of one or two chronicles which cover the same territory in the Old Testament, same players in the same period... It's that 1 Chronicles gives you more of a theological reflection rather than just a, a bare historical recording. And sometimes the, the Chronicles will look at the kings wistfully, like longingly, with this sad yearning for what the kings could have been. 
that really whets our appetite for a better coming king who we now know is Jesus. But in Hezekiah's case, it's what he actually is like. And the three chapters in Chronicles immediately before the one we read are devoted to a lengthy description of how Hezekiah purified the temple, organised for the priests to consecrate themselves, uh, to get themselves ready. He re-established the service of the temple so that once again in Jerusalem, the temple was used for sacrifice and singing like God was back in the house of the Lord thanks to Hezekiah. But that was not enough for him. He reinstituted the celebration of the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And he toured the country, right, the length and breadth of the country to invite people to join in in Jerusalem. Right? It wasn't unlike the way that Prince Charles travelled to Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland following the Queen's passing, pressing the flesh with the people of the land inviting them to renew their allegiance with the royal family, except Hezekiah was inviting people to renew their relationship and their allegiance and their loyalty to God. It is inspiring stuff. So the the last verse of chapter 31, and you've got that there in front of you, it ends like this. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and obedience to the law and commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly and so he prospered. Don't you want to have that written on your headstone? Inspiring stuff. So why is his story a story of grace? Well, it's because chapter 32 opens with that devastating news. Let's read it again. Chapter 32, verse 1. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, and dot, dot, dot. There'd been religious restoration, a wholehearted return of the king and the people to the commands of God and the worship of the Lord, and yet the disastrous news is that Assyria has invaded the cities of Judah and wants to take its capital, Jerusalem. And this is really where the grace of God kicks in. I mean, 2 Chronicles paints this upbeat, yearning picture of an ideal king of Israel. Right? Hezekiah busies himself with preparations. He fixes the broken sections of the wall. He reinforces it with an outer wall and watchtowers. He makes weapons and appoints military commanders. And then he encourages people with a rousing speech. Be strong and courageous. I mean, it's oratory. It's poetry. Let's read it together in verse 7. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him, it's only the arm of flesh, right? Tuck shop lady arms. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. It is rousing, brave heart sort of material. Hezekiah even reroutes the the water springs so that they flowed to the people inside the city and were unavailable to the assailants outside the city. What a guy! And yet that hasn't stopped the superpower of the day and the marching men and officers of Assyria stepping right to the foot of Jerusalem with a sneering, threatening challenge. 
And when you read the parallel account in 2 Kings, which is repeated in the middle of Isaiah, there's no theological reflection what a great guy Hezekiah is. There's no mention of his prudent preparation. There's no, you can take our lives, but you cannot take our freedom. There's none of that. It's a much plainer statement of their terrifying predicament. They are full of fear. A German shepherd, a Doberman, and a cat died. This is not a true story, by the way. In a moment, they're going to be talking. Doberman, German shepherd, and a cat died. And in heaven, they faced God, who wanted to know what they believed in. <laughs> the German shepherd said, I believe in discipline, training, and loyalty to my master. Well, good, said God, you may sit on my right side. The Doberman said, I believe in love and care and protection of my master. Aha, said God, you may sit on my left. And then God looked at the cat and said, what do you believe? And the cat replied dryly, I believe you're sitting on my seat. <laughs> that is what cats do, isn't it? And people as well, hey. See, what do you do when you face the most concerning scenarios in life? I, most of us rely on ourselves as if we were sitting in the God seat, don't we? With our own Messiah complex. Or perhaps we go to the best worldly option available. Where would Hezekiah go in the face of the iron fist of Assyria? It's clear from the parallel account in 2 Kings that uh, the Israelites were very tempted to look back to the fading superpower of Egypt to come to their rescue. And they were equally tempted to look to the emerging superpower of Babylon to be their ally. That question the Assyrians ask of Hezekiah in verse 10, in the hearing of all the people in Jerusalem, it is the pressing question of the day. Let's read it together. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Go to verse 13 where he continues, Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? In the uh, account of two kings, the question is even more acute. On whom are you depending? Friends, that really is the question, isn't it? Not just for Hezekiah and the Old Testament people of Israel. It's also the question for us today. On whom are we depending? On what are we basing our confidence as we face a life of uncertainty? As we face a culture of hostility? As we face our own failing minds and bodies? On whom do we depend? So that question really opens up the possibility of God's grace to swoop in like a feverish magpie in September. If Hezekiah trusts in Egypt, maybe there's no more room left for God's grace to be at play. But good luck trusting in Egypt. Hezekiah trusts in Babylon. Maybe they'll come to the rescue. But, you know, P.S., 
It'll only be a few decades before they drag the whole nation away into captivity. If you trust in your money, or you trust in your network of relationships, or your own ingenuity, I reckon you will get pretty far in this life. I reckon you will. But you won't be able to answer, or you won't have an answer, to those deepest issues and questions you face when it really comes to the crunch. You just won't. When you come up with a problem in life and it doesn't need to be a massive life event, it could just be a dilemma, I wonder, do you find yourself first drawing on your own resources and only then getting the advice of trusted sage friends, but only after all that's been exhausted, shooting up a prayer to God when every other worldly option has gone? Because that's what I find myself doing. I'm like Wayne in that regard. I think, how long will it take me to learn this rather simple lesson? Hezekiah turns to God. Verse 20 succinctly says that the king and the prophet together cried out in prayer to heaven. The account in 2 Kings has got a much longer description of what Hezekiah did. He firstly went to the temple dressed in sackcloth to signify his distress and helplessness. I mean, we are talking about the king here. Can you imagine King Charles III doing that? Along with his officials, all wearing sackcloth, they went to the prophet Isaiah, which I guess is equivalent to going to the word of God for us, and he prayed this raw, forthright prayer, just laying out the true nature of his predicament, acknowledging the offence of the Assyrians' threat. And pleading for God's name, not his own, not his kingdom, but God's name to be upheld. Listen to it. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the word Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It's true, Lord, the Assyrian kings, they have laid waste these nations and their lands and thrown their gods into the fire. But now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. It's a great prayer, isn't it? To access the grace and kindness of God, you want to have the sort of humility and concern for God's glory that Hezekiah did. Humility, I think it's like the turnstile through which you access his grace. Well, Hezekiah was humble. He'd been humbled by the imperious, severe bullying of Assyria. And he had prayed earnestly. And we all await an answer from God. Would God's grace swoop in? Would it trickle in? Would God remain silent? It's a silly question, isn't it? Because we've already read the passage. So you know the grace of God swooped in, less like a magpie and more like an eagle, but actually precisely like an avenging angel. As Sennacherib's forces were felled in a single swoop, according to the book of Kings, 185,000 of them felled in one night. 
And when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, returned home and was worshipping one of his gods, one of the deities by which he thought he had conquered nations in the very temple of that god, Sennacherib's sons killed him by the sword. <laughs> like no grace from that god, no protection from that god, not even in its own temple, not even on his home ground. God graciously granted Hezekiah the deliverance that he requested. It was a stunning turnaround. It was a true story of grace. We learn later on in 2 Chronicles 32, as well as in the book of Kings, that, when, that Hezekiah got deathly ill and God promised to extend his life by 15 years and famously gave him a miraculous sign reversing the path of the shadow of the sun on the temple steps. But Hezekiah's story is, is not a story of grace because God gave him additional years or even a miraculous sign. Hezekiah's story is a story of grace because when he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and realised that the best worldly options were not the best options after all, God lifted him up. And when he pleaded with God boldly, God answered his prayers in bold ways. Now, who gives a rip? Or why should we care? Well, because this is exactly what we read about in our New Testaments, friends. Places like 1 Peter 5, for example. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We have defined grace throughout this series as the kindness or goodness of God given to undeserving people. And we might even use an acronym saying grace, the word grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense, which makes it sound like it's only about Jesus' death that purchases our salvation. But it's much more than that. For starters, Hezekiah had never heard of Jesus living some 700 years before Jesus was born. And God's grace is not only about our salvation, we don't just rely on God's grace for forgiveness that first hour uh, when we first believe. We receive it years after we first believe. We experience it like what Wayne was saying in that video when Jesus looks at us and says he's pleased with what he sees. He's pleased with what he sees when we know what we're like. That pleasure of his and that love of God, that's his grace. And we rely on God's grace to get us through each day, through many toils and snares, especially those days when we face pressing trials and difficulties, don't we? O resourceful people of manly. That's what Hezekiah did. The, the Assyrian commander sneered, on whom are you depending on what do you base this confidence of yours? And Hezekiah and his people remained silent. But Hezekiah knew it was not upon the faltering allegiance of Egypt, nor the emerging power of Babylon. It was not even on his own ingenuity, though that was significant. It was upon God. And he humbled himself under God's mighty hand, 
in faith that God would lift him up in due time. He cast his anxieties on God because he knew that God cared for him. And friends, you and I can do the same. Please note that doesn't excuse us from taking the action that we ought to take. Hezekiah fortified the city. He rerouted the water source. He steeled his people with a rousing speech. And note further, there is no promise that God will whisk us away from our difficult situations immediately. That would be a waste, wouldn't it? We'd miss the opportunity to grow in our character and in our faith, like Wayne has grown in his character and his faith. Do you notice there, 1 Peter says that God will lift us up in due time, not right away. And just a few verses later, 1 Peter 5.10 says this, The God of all grace, you see there's that word again, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. So get on with doing what you need to do and don't expect instant delivery. But when your body is failing you, And when your mind is letting you down, and when your most precious human relationships end in breakdown or death, and when your investments fail, maybe even when they prosper, when you experience disappointment after disappointment, well, there's an opportunity to lean into humility so that God's grace might swoop into your life so that he will lift you up, so that he himself will restore you and make you strong and steadfast. Friends, as we finish, Hezekiah sounds like he should have a book of the Bible named after him. I secretly wish he did. There was no one among the kings of Judah quite like him. He was was an outstanding, a stellar chap. But really his story is less about Hezekiah and it's more about the God who met him with grace at his most pressing moments when he laid it all out before God and you think if God does that for people at their weakest moments why wouldn't you appeal to him in all your moments he is after all a God of grace and your story can equally be a story of grace let's close in prayer Heavenly Father we thank you for this story of Hezekiah way more obscure than he ought to be thank you for your grace that was in operation in his life forgive us for when we trust in our own ingenuity as if we were like that ridiculous cat occupying the god seat or alternatively where we trust in the best worldly options available and fail to look to you forgive us for that we humble ourselves before you expecting that you will lift us up. We cast our anxieties upon you because we know you care for us. You are the God of grace. Amen.